This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with the fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society. You can now get the book, Building Your Permaculture Property, from the team at Verge Permaculture in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback versions at newsociety.com. And while you probably already know that they print all of their books on post-consumer recycled paper and that they're a carbon-neutral company, you may not know that they've created a guide to environmentally responsible digital reading as well. Check out the link in the show notes to learn how your digital learning can be sustainable too. Welcome back, everyone, to the first episode of season six of this show. This podcast has undergone a lot of changes and evolutions since I began as the Abundant Edge podcast back in 2017 in Guatemala. Now, back then, I was working mostly in natural building, designing homes, and managing construction sites for friends and clients around Lake Atitlan. And now, it's been two and a half years since I moved to Spain to be with my partner. And after years of searching and planning, we're now preparing to move to a new property later this year in the Catalan Mountains. Yet, through all of these changes, my fascination for the knowledge and the stories of the folks around the world who are working to regenerate this planet and their communities has only grown. Now, this year and over the 48 weeks of this podcast season, I want to take you through a learning journey through some of the most important concepts, skills, and experiences that I've come to value in my professional work, as well as the path that I'll be taking to move into our new property and design the place to accomplish the personal, financial, and community goals that my partner and I have set out for ourselves. I've also been listening keenly to the valuable feedback and ideas that have been coming up in the Discord channel. Many of you there have voiced a clear interest in hearing more in-depth and long-form interviews, and so that's exactly what I'll be working to provide. So to start off this season, I'll be doing a deep dive into the design process from some of the most renowned permaculture and regenerative project planners that I know. Since all of you are coming from different contexts and resource bases, I'm going to approach this topic from different angles. In this first session, I spoke with Rob Avis from Verge Permaculture, for 12 years now, he and his wife, Michelle, along with a growing team of designers, have been elevating professional design in Canada and have written and produced professional resources and educational content in order to make permaculture and environmental design learning accessible to as many people as possible. Since launching Verge, Rob has helped more than 5,000 students and a growing number of clients to design and or create integrated systems for shelter, energy, water, waste, and food all while supporting local economies and regenerating the land. In 2019, Rob moved to a 65-hectare wooded property in central Alberta, Canada, and now spends most of his free time building his own permaculture property. In this session, we covered a lot of ground, but focused on the design process specifically for small and residential scale projects. We talk about the differences in the process at small scales and the advantages and disadvantages of that space limitation. Rob shares a lot of his personal learnings from being a designer and educator over a decade and the aspects of learning and the observation process that he's expanded because it's been useful or he now breezes past because it's not as useful. We also spend some focus time talking about the opportunities outside of just growing food that he sees in making a living and building businesses through the application of permaculture training. 
Now be sure to stick around all the way till the end where Rob gives a sneak peek at the new blockchain project that he's launching this year with the co-founders of the Ethereum cryptocurrency, all with the goal of regenerating the planet by the year 2049. Rob brilliantly mixes a deep and philosophical understanding of earth care and environmental patterns with a practical and focused approach of a career engineer. You'll really want to take the time in this one to hear it all the way through. So with that said, I'll hand things over now to Rob Avis. It's been a while since we chatted last time and we've both made some big moves. You're on a new property and you've got a new book out. I spoke with Dakota, like I mentioned before, and we kind of had started working through some of the chapters of this book. And one of the things that I know that you have a lot of experience with, have talked about uh, endlessly on videos and in the courses that you run, is how to get started in the design process, mostly at just about any scale, because the patterns repeat themselves even as you go larger or smaller. Um, but having already talked with Dakota about the necessity of getting clear about your goals and your vision, and especially since permaculture properties can be so many things, but the clarity of what you want out of the end result can be a big factor that guides the design. What are some of the most common long-term goals and big visions that your clients and your students come to you with? You see patterns in that as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we go through the process of, um, of kind of getting clear on their vision and values. And I feel like that's becoming part of the kind of permaculture process now um, it was probably a, one of the weaker parts in the in the design the permaculture design course that, that bill came up with um, and through various <clears throat> other influences like holistic management and the savory institute or savory hub um, you know those influences have started to permeate into permaculture and so that's what you and dakota were talking about and if you don't i mean the quote that we can summarize that whole section with is if one does not know to which port one is sailing, then no wind is a good wind. <clears throat> and so yeah, in sailing, yeah. our weather systems move around in, in circles. And if you're saying yes to everything, um, you'll end up going in circles. And, uh, and so that's the sailing analogy. But when we look at the design of a property, small or large, especially with the kind of interconnected systems that we strive toward in permaculture, uh, there's a lot of details, there's lots of connections, and um, we have the power of placement in permaculture, but we don't have the power of conductivity. And so uh, sometimes we'll place two systems together and um, they won't connect and, and our designs will, will, not, will not work. And, and that's just a form of feedback. And so what's interesting about values and vision is that we all fundamentally pretty much want the same thing. And, and we have different words that we use that resonate with us to kind of get there. And the, the thing that we're all after on planet Earth, unless you're psychopathic, is well-being. And when, when you teach somebody a permaculture design course, um, they, they kind of glaze over the well-being piece. They think, well, I need a rocket mass heater. I need a food forest. Or I need a garden or a rain tank or whatever. And it's really important to get to the why. And so in that first stage, what we're trying to help people to do is to allow them to get to their own insight that the reason that you're doing all this work to build a permaculture system is to enhance well-being. And it's not just to enhance your well-being, it's to enhance the well-being of future generations because we have 
we are self-interested individuals, but we have enlightened self-interest. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, if you were just purely self-interested, you might not care too much about future generations, but we have this, this selfish gene inside of us that um, wants to make sure that, that our, our kin are going to be well taken care of as well. And so, you know, it's important to us to know that what we're doing is also going to create well-being for them. And, and then if you expand that, fractal that out just a little bit more, you recognize that the best way to give well-being to your kin and even to yourself is to make sure the people around you are in, in good shape as well. And so that's the whole function of the values and vision is to really get clear of why. It's not because you want a food forest. It's because you want the products that that food forest or the well-being that that food forest is going to give to you. And um, it's really important that people have those, those insights. It's easy for us to tell people that, but until that thing has clicked in their head, um, you know, it's, it's just some other consultant telling them something. The other thing that, and I think this is <clears throat> probably my biggest insight over the last 14 years of teaching permaculture, is that you can't teach design. It's not possible. Um, in fact, design is innate. Like to be human is to design. And, um, and so it's like um, Nassim Taleb has this analogy in his book, Anti-Fragile. <clears throat> and uh, he says, uh, imagine you're a professor and you've got a, cl a classroom sitting in front of you and you walk into class one day and, and you're a physics professor, actually, you specialize in aerodynamics. And you walk into class one day and you bring in a bird cage and there's a bird inside of it. And you say, okay, class, I'm going to teach this bird how to fly. And so he turns around at the chalkboard and he starts putting all the theorems up and uh, explaining the Bernoulli principle, which by the way, we still don't even know if flying is because of the Bernoulli principle. We're still figuring that out. It's, it's a very empirical thing flying. Most people don't realize that when they're in an airplane, they're relying entirely on empirical observations and not a really true understanding of what's going on up there. But we have a good sense of it. It's just we don't know exactly what's going on. And so he goes through all these theorems and, and for two hours explains to this bird like the, the principles of flight. And then he opens the door up and the bird steps out and flies. And he's like, see, I, I told you that I could teach this bird how to fly. And, and so that bird knew how to fly. It was genetically part of its being. It's part of its survival mechanism. And my argument is that humans have that same um, innate programming inside of them, not to fly, but to design. And probably everybody on this call that's listening has an, um, an experience where they've gone into somebody's house or to somebody's property. And they, they think like, man, why is their kitchen laid out this way? Or why did they place that thing, that, that picnic table on their property over there or that food forest in that location or it just doesn't make any sense. And maybe it doesn't make sense to them, but it might've made sense to the person that put it there. And so that's your analytical brain kind of operating on automatic, um, figuring out kind of where things go. And so that's, that's an innate ability. What we need to teach as <clears throat> permaculture teachers and also what, what we need to do as consultants when we're going in and designing any property, small or large, <clears throat> is often the thing that, that we spend the least amount of time on and um, probably my second biggest insight <clears throat> over the last 14 years has been that 80 to 90% of the solution on any property, on any design, solving any problem, no matter if it's a personal problem or a landscape problem or a building science problem or a renewable energy problem, 
is in the diagnosis. And so when we're, um, and, and so you asked like, what are some of the patterns that are typical from small to large projects is people don't spend enough time diagnosing. And most of the solution exists within there. And so if we think about, and, and I'll let you jump in, cause I'm sure you wanna say some stuff there about that. But if we think about a property as a Venn diagram, and so the first, imagine the first bubble in the Venn diagram, this is gigantic circle. <clears throat> And that gigantic circle is, uh, I call it the sum of possibilities, okay? And it's super overwhelming because it's, it's almost, it's like unlimited possibilities as this giant circle. And so somebody, small or large prop property goes onto this property and, and they just look at it like, oh my gosh, I'm just, I, how am I gonna solve this problem? It's just, there's so many possibilities here. And then you get your values and vision piece and that's another bubble and that sits, that's nested inside of the big bubble, okay? And so that's one set of constraints. It's like, well, now all of a sudden, all of those infinite possibilities that you thought existed don't because only a certain number of them exist within what your values and vision want. And then we're gonna bring another uh, bubble in, which is what the property wants to be. And so in permaculture, we look at um, patterns in ecosystems, patterns in, of human existence, um, and we understand what the intrinsic, we try to understand what the intrinsic um, desires and, and um, characteristics of those systems, humans or ecosystems or buildings or whatever. And then you look for an intersection between your values and vision and, um, and that property. And it, there may or not, may not be an intersection. It, like you may have bought the wrong property and so they don't intersect. Or maybe you have brought the right property and there's now a sliver that exists between your values and vision and what your property wants to be. And then we bring a third bubble in, which is your resources. And we use Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landuo's concept of eight forms of capital. And we look at the capital that you've got access to and, and then we fit that bubble in too. And hopefully there's the right resources to, you know, that will allow you to intersect those other two bubbles. And now all of a sudden we went from this infinite possibility down to this tiny little sliver of possibility that exists, which takes away all the complexity um, and all everything that I did there, which was understanding the patterns of the landscape, understanding the patterns of the mind, and, and, and creating a more holistic balance sheet of your resources, and trying to figure out where the synergies exist between those three things. And now I took this really complex problem, and I simplified it down to this tiny little sliver um, of, of opportunity, and I did all of that through diagnosis. Yeah, for sure. And I think you've made a lot of good points there. It's kind of hard to think where to go back and to start. I really agree with that observation that design is something that is inherent to us. And I hadn't heard it articulated that way, but it made immediate sense from my own observations as well in teaching. Um, we're constantly altering our living environment, the things that we interact with in order for them to uh, be more accessible more easy to interact with or, you know, whatever the criteria someone is looking through. I know a lot of people do through ways that I wouldn't myself through aesthetics or, you know, different priorities, but that gathering information in order to be able to diagnose, to limit the options so that one can make a decision. Otherwise, that's really where that overwhelm comes from. That does seem to be the area where you can have the most influence on changing these patterns of thinking instead of seeing a massive picture with a whole bunch of disjointed pieces and infinite options into 
based on what you have access to with your own resources. And like you said, those overlapping Venn diagrams are the things that pertain to you, your context, and also, um, you know, all these other factors that are unique to the person who's designing the place, all of those elements, uh, that can be taught. That can be something that people can learn to see through observation, through data collection. And that's really that second part of your book. Um, that being said, there are still a huge amount of aspects of data collection and things that are often very foreign to people who are new to this concept in order to wrap their heads around or to learn where to find this information or at what time of the year. And that part in itself can be very overwhelming. It's a lot of new information. And I'm sure you've seen, you can go down the rabbit hole in a lot of them into the minute details all the way down to the minerals inside of your soil. And so in order to further narrow it down and take the overwhelm out of that step, what are some of the priority things that you have, especially new people to, to look into if they're designing something, say, for a home scale project? So one of the amazing things about partnering with nature is that, and I also, this is another kind of piece that people get um, drawn down into, and, and it ends up in this kind of, I don't want to say downward spiral, but it, basically a misdirected focus is maybe a better way of putting it. But <clears throat> we we definitely leverage a lot of the insights that PA Yeomans um, came up with the scale of permanence. It was a really brilliant piece of thinking that he did. And we've modified it to be our own. Um, we've changed the order of some stuff, but mo more or less, it follows a very similar pattern. And so one of the kind of the most detailed <clears throat> Uh, pieces in the scale of permanence is the understanding of soil. Um, and so you can get drawn down these rabbit holes trying to understand like how much sand, how much silt, how much clay, what's the microbial characteristics of your soil, how much carbon does it have? And those are kind of important to a point, but it's interesting to note that soil is last on the list. It's the last element that we even think about. In fact, I almost never think about the soil. Um, and some people might be cursing me as I say this right now, but there's not enough sand, silt, and clay, or enough fossil fuels for that matter, to move sand, silt, and clay around planet Earth um, to create the perfect loam that every gardener wants. And so um, you're kind of stuck with what you got. And, but the good news is, is that when you partner with nature, um, she's been stuck with what she's had for billions of years, and she's figured out how to work with it. <clears throat> And so the scale of permanence is really brilliant because it really helps to, to hone in on what the most important components are um, to focus on first, second, third, and fourth. And sometimes you'll, you'll manipulate them a little bit. Like we don't think about the scale of permanence or our order of operations, as we refer to it in our book, as a, a dogmatic thing. Um, because sometimes you're going to buy a property, for example, that have structures on it already. If you're buying a property with a house and a garage and the greenhouse or whatever, you know, those might not be movable in any kind of economic way. And so, you know, water access structures, which is um, Lawton's whole thing, if you kind of scale that up now with the scale of permanence, is actually climate, geography, <clears throat> water access structures, flora, fauna, fencing, technology, business and soil. Um, and so you may move those elements around based upon what already exists uh, on your property. And that's all right, but this is just a guideline. And so 
when we start off at the, the very top of that scale of permanence in our diagnosis, um, the reason climate and geography are up there first is that they're almost impossible to manipulate. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're kind of stuck with the rain that you've got. Um, what's really cool about our climate in the north here is that we actually have a huge ability to influence the amount of water we have access to because of snow. And snow is the only, <clears throat> maybe snow and, um, and humidity are um, kind of secret, um, uh, I don't know, Jedi moves that permaculturists can use um, because we can put up snow fences and we can put up uh, humidity fences that, that remove humidity from the air, similar to the redwoods and similar to forests actually. Um, but you're kind of stuck with what you got. And, uh, you know, if, if chemtrails actually exist, um, you know, it's only going to be available to a very select few group of people. Um, and I'm talking about weather modification. Actually, that does exist. We have weather modification <clears throat> here in Alberta. They, uh, they actually spray the skies with a silver compound to reduce hail. So we know that <clears throat> some degree of it is possible. Um, how far out that goes, I don't know. And I don't spend any time thinking about it really because it's out of my, I try and live my life with this understanding of sphere of influence and sphere of concern. And I try not to spend too much time in the sphere of concern side. And so if I have no influence over it, I don't put a lot of my mental energy into it. Uh, just as an aside, in case people start thinking that I'm a, a chemtrailer, but um, um, basically <clears throat> we're kind of stuck with what we got geographically and uh, climatically, unless we're willing to leave and move. And, um, and so those are what we call formative forces. <clears throat> They're formative because they have direct influence on all the factors below. And so we can kind of simplify permaculture design while we're talking about this down in a couple of easy statements for people. And I say this in our, in our permaculture design course. Every element on your landscape either wants water or doesn't want it, or there can be gray versions of that as well. Some, some might want certain amounts of water, we'll say. So, um, and so every element can kind of be delineated based upon where it sits on that spectrum of desiring water. And, um, and then every element <clears throat> on your landscape either um, is dehydrating or rehydrating. So a roof is a dehydrating element. Um, and then if it's a dehydrating element, it's an opportunity to harvest water. And then uh, you know, a, um, a rain garden or a swale would be a rehydrating element. And so if you understand that everything kind of fits into these two spectrums, <clears throat> And you can work through a scale of permanence in, in how you diagnosed. What's your rainfall? What's your snowfall? What, where does your wind come from? Um, kind of the, the, the key, Toby Hemingway used to say that the sectors that we talk about in permaculture are kind of the trump cards. And they always have to come first. That's part of that diagnosis piece because it's so hard to manipulate the climatic variables on your property. And so once you understand those formative forces, um, if you can get the first three things right, so geography, climate, and water, water is the first element where we actually have the ability to kind of bend the rules a little bit. We don't want to break them, but we can bend them a little bit. And then that has cascading benefits because once you know how the water is going to work on your property, there's really only one or two places you can put a house on most properties, especially if it's a small property. If once we get into bigger properties, you might have two or three locations. Um, after the water piece, but then you get to access and it's like, well, what's the county, where are they going to allow access onto your farm? 
um, or on a smaller property, there's probably going to be setbacks. And so the, the municipality is going to determine what your setbacks are going to be to your borders. So now all of a sudden, and then what are your resources? So if your resources don't allow you to build a five kilometer road into your property, you're going to put your house pretty close to, to the main access point. And so now we've taken that two or three locations that were good based upon water, and we've narrowed it down to probably one. Um, so access is done that. And then we get to structures. And so structures are, well, we need a house and it needs to be bioregionally, you know, representative of what makes sense here. And, um, and so that, are you in a cold climate? Are you in the subtropics? Are you in the tropics? Are you in the desert? And if you've done your water piece and your access piece first, and you have a good sense of um, the resources on the land, because you've probably done some analysis based on the geography component, you know whether you're going to be building, like let's say you find clay, for example, as a result of doing your water harvesting piece, and you live in the prairies like I do. It's like, well, now straw bale houses are a really great appropriate technology. And we know that because I've got access to straw from around me and I've got clay on my site and probably I have sand there somewhere if I dig long enough and find it. So design actually is not something we do. Coming back to what we were talking about earlier, it's something that emerges out of the woodwork as we find little tidbits of information. And we refer to those kind of like using Taleb's language as black swans. And every property has a few of these black swans. And when you see them, it fundamentally shifts everything about that property. Yeah, I really like that emerging design uh, as a further elaboration of what we were talking about before. As you start to put all the pieces together and gather the essential information, what is almost removed from possibility is the design that's left, right? And Correct. I'm also curious as to how you came up with some of the additions and amendments to the scale of permanence that you were talking about. I know you've got on yours the uh, the flora fauna and then business and technology towards the end. And I've worked with a bunch of people who have made their own adaptations. Dave Jackie and Eric Tonsmeyer added one that I use a lot, which is invisible structures, which you referenced as regulations, uh, which is often a very much determining factor, especially in hyper-regulated uh, areas like where both of us live. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also working with uh, Darren Doherty and the Regrarians platform that has expanded it to a, a 10 point scale of permanence adaptation. And I can only assume that you've added these in because you've found a lot of utility in them as you go through this cycle quite often. How do you interpret the flora, fauna, and then business and technology elements? And how have you found them useful in the design process? Yeah, so in our climate, uh, you know, livestock is a really important component of what it means to have a regenerative food system. And um, a lot of times the livestock that we want to integrate into our landscapes are gonna want to compete with the, the other food products that we're gonna grow. And so uh, fencing comes next. <clears throat> um, and so we have to fence our areas for access um, or for, for basically segregating certain activities or behaviors. <clears throat> and until we have the fencing set up, we can't really go and plant anything um, because, and so our fencing design is going to help to, um, protect basically our plantings. Um, so either it'll limit the amount of grazing that goes on, it'll keep the goats out of the, the food forest or out of the garden. Um, and so fencing comes before flora <clears throat> in terms of how we design. And it, like, the thing is, <clears throat> I think this is really important, actually. 
we use the scale of permanence as a as a set of training wheels. I think that's really important for people to realize. And so people go back and and get the book or or read some of our blogs or videos and they say, wow, you have to do this, 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 and this. It's like, well, not really. This is um Dan Palmer is working on uh his own kind of design process and and um he's really big on this concept of um holistic design and and that design is not a linear process <clears throat> and i couldn't agree with him more um and i think one of his criticisms of our book was that that we kind of made this out to be a very linear process step one two three four five and then the scale of permanence you know going all through these different elements and and somebody could <clears throat> get the book and and kind of interpret it that way but we're pretty clear in the book when we say that if it's the first time designing or it's your 10th time designing, there's probably going to be a benefit of having a sequential um, process to follow. But once you're at your 100th or 200th design um, and, you know, you're not, your brain doesn't work in sequential uh, processing. It's a, it's a parallel processing, processing unit. There are limitations to our prefrontal cortex, but um, uh, I'm sure you've had the experience where you go to bed with a problem and you wake up with a solution. And so there is parallel processing going on in the back. It's just not conscious all the time. And so, uh, however, we do live in a temporal paradigm that, um, that means that one second comes after another. And there's not, at least my, I haven't figured out how to tap into parallel universes yet. And so, um, when I'm teaching something to somebody, I still teach it in a linear fashion because um, before you can learn to run, you have to learn to walk. And before you can learn to walk, you have to learn how to crawl. And so I wanna just put that down there because um, you know, if you do follow this process, um, we actually want you to make the process your own too. And you might have a better sequence or organization than we've even come up with based upon your context and where, you, where you're living in the world. This is just how it's it's evolved for us. Um, when we go onto a property, um, sequencing is really important in how we think about design, but also how we we implement um, uh, installation as well. And um, <clears throat> and so it really just follows the same principles as PA Yeomans. Um, uh, so part of it is like what's the right sequence in the design process, but also. <clears throat> um, you know, what is this, what is, how rapidly can you change some of these things once they get installed? And, um, and so we want to make sure that we get that order of operations, right? And so business and technology, for example, are things that can, can change relatively quickly relative to compared to a tree or compared to the climate. Um, a business might only last two years. It might last five. It might, might, might last 30. It's still a very short period of time when we're thinking in terms of biological timescales. Um, and so we've just, and we've changed this list a number of times too, as we work through it. Um, and this is our latest revision and I, um, hold, uh, the right to change it at any time in the future, if we have more insights. Yeah. And this is why I really like talking to you and those of you who've worked at Verge Permaculture is that you have kept very good records of the evolution of how you've taught and adapted your teaching methods over time. And, Actually, this is something that I'm working on as I redo some of the online courses that I've had out through different distributors in the past. And I'm starting to like uh, bring things and consolidate them together, revamp them a little bit with some of that experience. And then also think about 
who the audience is, whether it's going to be farmers this time, or if it's going to be, you know, people working on small home scale projects again, or if it's something bigger, uh, and sometimes even applying some of the same concepts to things like business. Uh, with all of the things that are relevant to creating this emergent design, what are some of the ones that you, perhaps you hear everybody harping on kind of like getting to know your soil, like you mentioned before, that you sort of gloss over at this point because you don't see a real need, especially not to focus on the details of it when you're just starting, when you've got your training wheels, like you mentioned. And perhaps what are some of the ones that are glossed over by others that you found are actually really important, especially when you're learning it? Hmm. I'll have to give that some thought. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about, more about the soil because uh, there's some insights there. <coughs> um, we didn't just, you know, make a haphazard decision to ignore the soil. Um, and so when we first started really ramping up our consulting, we, we spent a lot of our clients' money getting soil samples. Um, we sent them to different labs. We had different protocols done. Um, but we also, uh, one of Dakota's, uh, areas of brilliance was, um, you know, as a farmer and a very, farmers are very practical people and, you know, they have very limited budgets, profit margins on farms are really low. And so they always come up with innovative ways, uh, just purely out of necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. And so he came up with this idea of a visual soil inspection that he could repeat over and over again that required a shovel, a coat hanger, uh, a bucket with the bottom cut off of it and a couple of other little bits and bobs. Uh, I think we typically carry an infrared temperature monitor with us. And, um, and so that kind of encompasses the holistic management bullseye, uh, some infiltration, um, a quick uh, inspection of the arthropods um, where the larger insects or bugs that are present um sometimes we'll do a ph test but um basically when we looked uh when we go onto a property <clears throat> this is a really actually important thing if you're gonna if you're designing a property right now um saying that we ignore the soil is actually not totally true we just we pay attention to it in very specific ways and one of the best things that you can do when you're getting started and you're going onto a property, there's a few little tips and tricks we can, we can give to you guys for diagnosis. Um, one of which is we walk the property around the outside and we try and understand where all the water flows are coming onto the property and coming off the property. So in the same way on a roof, on a house, you want to know where the water is coming from and where it's going to. And your job as a permaculture designer is to come up with innovative ways to intercept that slow and store it. That's number one. Number two, and this comes back to the soil, is I look for the worst place on the property and I look for the best place on the property. So what is the part of that ecosystem that we have control over on this land? If you don't have a good place on the property, then I'll look for other properties in the vicinity that have a intact ecosystem um, that I can go and explore. There was this one property in Ontario that we were working on and it had remnants of this old growth um, Carolinian forest chunk. And the Carolinian forest is one of the most biodiverse forest systems in North America. And it comes right up into the southern part of Ontario, which is actually, most people don't know this, but southern Ontario is the same latitude as California. 
Um, and so it's got this very kind of tropical feel to it or subtropical feel to it <clears throat> or Mediterranean, I guess would be a better uh, representation of it. But, um, but it's a very, very unique forest structure. And so we went onto this property and it was, they were growing soy and corn um, in rotation and the soils were just hideous. Like they were so bad. They didn't infiltrate. Um, there was corn stover from two years ago. We knew that because of the rotation. So nothing was decomposing. So that gives you a lot of indication of what's going on there. <clears throat> and they were just pumping it with inputs. Um, and then we saw this old block of forest just on the other side of the field. And we went over there we, we were doing our visual soil assessment and we dug in the forest and chocolate brown cake type soil, just full of life. And there was, um, uh, acorns and walnuts on the ground, um, or at least the shells are remnants of it. And, um, if you've ever read, uh, J. Russell Smith's of permanent agriculture, I mean, it was basically the corn tree and, um, and the wheat tree and, and all of this other stuff, just, just, and there's no gnomes, there's no garden gnomes running around managing these systems. They're not inputting fertilizer. And so we're bringing our client there and we're saying like, look, this, this system has none of your input. And it's, it's doing incredible. Um, and this system, you're putting all these inputs in and it's going downhill. And so it really quickly becomes uh, an incredible contrast that again, creates insights in your head. It's like, what is that system doing that this system isn't? And then recognizing that, and this is part of the philosophy that I think Bill was trying to get across is that humans are not inherently destructive. We just get the design wrong. Um, and so we can actually, um, and in his other statement, which is everything gardens, um, we can actually intervene in that system in a way that actually improves its productivity. And we might choose to use that system as our zone five, but we can take the intelligence from that system and get all the same benefits and yields plus a whole bunch more by, by transporting that system onto this system um, and so I think it comes back to diagnosis again, and, and that when you have some very simple tools that um, allow you to compare two systems in a very similar area, um, you can start to understand the differences. And then coming back to the soil samples, we had those two soil samples tested. So we knew one was dead because the corn was not rotting. There's no carbon, there's no infiltration. And the other one was absolutely alive with all the bugs and infiltration and everything else, we sent them off to the labs and the labs said the exact opposite. And we're just like, what, how is that possible? And we, we did this like a dozen times. And most of the time, the soils that we observed to be the most productive, uh, healthy soils were the ones that the soil tests were saying were the least healthy. And, and so we really started to question the validity and we ended up in a situation where we had a conference in uh, interior of British Columbia and uh, Dakota and I ended up in a debate with uh, a PhD soil scientist and uh, we were talking about this to this young agrarians group um, about some of our observations around the, the question of the validity of soil samples and he really took you know, offense to it because that, that had been his entire career. And then we asked some very poignant questions and he basically confirmed our suspicion that, that he said, yeah, soil, soil tests are kind of useless, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. And which is kind of an interesting outcome. And so, uh, and that had a really big influence on 
on kind of where we place soil and how, how much effort we put into trying to manipulate it. Um, and so what we found is that when you get the water cycle right, when you get the flora cycle right, when you get the fencing right to keep the livestock in the right place at the right time for the right amount, scale time, placement, and form, everything else kind of follows suit. It's kind of like the design emerges, like your business will be better, your soil will be better, um, your plants will be happier. Uh, so um, diagnosis, 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 and making sure that you've got some of those like simple heuristics that you can rely upon so that when you go to a site, um, you kind of know where you're starting, you know what the middle part is, and you know what the ending is, and then you're kind of filling in the gaps in between. Yeah, I love that example. What a fantastic story. And it really goes along with what I've been finding with the projects I've done in the field too. And even up to this point where we try and assess as much as we can of the health of a place by simple observation and simple tools, just like you say in Dakota has, has come up to as well, observing how the plants are doing before you even start to dig. And then just using basic hand tools, uh, the texture of the soil, the things that you can observe yourself before you ever go into the microbiology and the mineral content itself, um, especially when the results of that are conflicting with what you can objectively see as well. I think we give a lot of confidence in these high-tech solutions and people with uh, advanced degrees and forget the power that we have to really just pay attention and look around and observe and use that as the feedback loop that's necessary to make effective interventions, especially when we're working on limited budgets or resources, like you were talking about to help make those decisions. Now, let's focus again a little on these smaller scale projects, because that's where most people are coming from. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. also where I'm sure you as well get a lot of the questions about, oh, what can I do? I don't have enough space and people feeling a little uh, helpless thinking that they need a lot of space in order to do anything meaningful, especially for their own lives. Um, what are some of the most persistent myths and misconceptions about what can be done on a small property, as well as some of the, uh, I guess, assumptions of what is going to be easy to do because it's small? I find uh, inconsistencies on both ends. Um, okay, so, uh, I mean, this is an audio format, but um, if, if folks can kind of remember back to uh, probably grade nine or grade 10 um, mathematics <clears throat> when we learned how to figure out the area of a circle. The area of a circle is pi r squared. So 3.14 times the radius squared. And that's the surface area of a circle. So a two-dimensional object. And because of that r squared in there, if you map out or if you graph out the area of a circle on a spreadsheet, <clears throat> and you change the radius, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and then you put that on a graph, because there's a squared function in there, the amount of energy that it takes to manage um, a circle as you go further and further out uh, increases exponentially because of the R squared, right? The square is an exponential function. And so, this is why zones are so important because we recognize that the, um, you know, as that, as you move further away from your center of energy, it doesn't become like being twice as far away doesn't become twice as much work to, to, to manage. It's, it's like, it's R squared as much work to manage when you get that much further away. 
But unfortunately for you and me, we don't live in a two-dimensional world. We live in a three-dimensional world. And so we actually have to think about the function in terms of R cubed. So the uh, volume of uh, a hemisphere, I think, is four-thirds um, pi R cubed. And somebody might correct me on that. I haven't looked it up recently. But the point is, is that the R is cubed, not squared. And so when we start working in the vertical space, <clears throat> which is really important when we're in urban environments, we're now, um, we do have a limit to how far up we can go. We're not flying in airplanes. So we'll call it two meters maybe, or six feet. Um, but now we're expanding the area in a two-dimensional space while maintaining all of the productivity from the ground up to six feet. And so that becomes infinitely more complex because now we're not, our curve is not going up um, as a square, it's going up as a cube. And so basically to simplify that down, it's a much steeper curve, which means the further away you go, the more opportunities to manage that exist. You can say it in the other way as well, is that um, the further, like the area that you manage, uh, if it's a smaller area, you can, increase the amount of intensity that you have the, or you have more energy to spend on a smaller amount of space. And so I actually absolutely love small scale design. Um, I, I don't do it anymore because I like being on learning curves. It's just one of my, my problems. But um, I used to go, this is a little exercise people can do. And I found this was probably one of the best things that I ever did when I first got into permaculture. Because I was, I'm an engineer, I'm not a landscape designer. And I still stand behind that. I'm not, I can't make landscapes look good. I just mimic, yeah, mimic nature. Um, and if, if people like the way a forest looks, they'll probably like the way my stuff look. But I don't, I don't use aesthetic as my primary um, driver. But um, I call it back alley creeping. And so coming back to our, how we started this conversation, we have a critical eye. Most of us have critical eyes for what we like and what we don't like. And most of the time, we're, we're, it's easier for us to say what we don't like than what it is that we do like. And so when my son was young, um, I'd put him on our bike and we would drive down back alleys um, in Calgary and we would creep over people's fences. And now I lived in a neighborhood where this was socially acceptable more than other neighborhoods and fences were generally pretty low and I wouldn't spend a long time just standing there kind of you know um what's the word uh um I wasn't stalking people let's just put it that way I was just looking at their backyards and I would kind of look at like where elements were placed and then I I um and this is an exercise I give to my students and I say you know in five minutes design the property where would the rain barrel go? Where does the garden go? Where does the food forest go? Um, where would you put a solar array? Um, would you take some of the windows out of the house and put them in other places to maximize solar gain? And um, after a few of these exercises, um, you know, people get it. And so I did this one course uh, in Calgary. It was like a walkabout. And we got a local community together. And they chose five houses. There was probably 15 to 25 people in this group. And we went to the three houses with the group. And I said, okay, you guys design it. You've got 10 minutes. And they would kind of get into little groups and they, without much knowledge of permaculture, and they would come up with amazing little designs. It was great. And then I would come in and say, okay, this is how I see it. And it was like, and um, people would have insights and they would learn something. And, and, um, and so you can start to practice this, this design on your own. And, and the reason to do this is that in an urban property, 
you are space constrained. And so, whereas on a rural property, you're not space constrained. And so rural people almost always get drunk on space. They literally become inebriated and then shit just goes everywhere. And then, and then they create this massive problem for themselves and they're constantly trying to run around to just keep everything alive. Um, you don't have that problem in an urban space. Your problem in an urban space is you don't have enough space. And so you have to understand um, sun angles and you have to understand access to water and you have to understand um, the kind of physiology of plants so that you know which plants should go to the north in the northern hemisphere and which plants should go to the south. And you have to understand how shade propagates and where frost comes from. And, uh, you know, we, we had a massive garden out here on our farm last year, and I'm pretty sure we produced less food on this massive garden last year than we did typically on our tiny little 5,000 square foot poster sized um, lot in the city, um, just because there was a huge learning curve for us to be able to manage this, this huge area amongst all of the other construction projects that are going on. So um, I'm, I'm all on board with, with uh, David Holmgren's prompt um, new book, Retro Suburbia. And, um, and I actually think that, that the development pattern for a equitable or regenerative future for humans for most people are going to be in small towns and, and ironically maybe in suburbia where you can have between half to one acre. That's more than enough room to, to grow all of your eggs and most of your vegetables. Um, and it's just gonna be about being disciplined about how you use space. And there's so much creativity that can go into these small spaces as, as I'm sure you've talked with all of your students about as well. I'm so glad you brought that up. And like, first of all, like I started in engineering as well. And that's often the reference that I go to in my own design thinking. But I find myself working a lot with larger scale farmers just through my work with uh, the community and the academy in climate farmers. Um, but still wanting to come back to these smaller spaces, which is really how I got started out, which was in natural building and home design, because that's where I saw the, the, the possibility for design to have the most impact on people's lives. You know, for the most part, yeah. people spend a majority of their time indoors these days. And even more so if you go into the cold climates, not so much here in Spain where I've ended up. Um, but I mean, even if we're just, talking about sleeping time, there's a huge opportunity to create environments uh, for health, for well-being in these areas that we spend so much of our time and where the concentration of energy and functions in most people's lives tend to be and then start mm -hmm. to go out from there. And I think it's often very much overlooked the potential of intervening at these zone zero places. I think, you know, maybe even because of the naming the fact that one and two, they start as far as you start to get further away from the nucleus of the cell of where we live. Um, yeah. But like you said, that the intensity and the amount of considerations when you have those types of creative constraints, that having a massive property often allows you to, it's almost like having a huge budget. People make some of the mm -hmm. worst decisions when they can solve them with an excess of a certain resource. Um, yeah. And by coming back and trying to solve them with the resource that isn't the easiest one to spend often creates much more creative solutions and intuitive uh, problem solving than, than being able to chuck resources at a problem otherwise, whether it be space or money or whatever you might have. 
Um, now I want to go into one other aspect of something that you've been putting out content on for a while. And I've seen some new videos and opportunities at Verge, and that is creating an economy out of this type of thinking, this type of design, the opportunities in permaculture to create a livelihood, to build a business. And you've come up with some videos guiding ideas that you've had that you just don't have time to pursue, but also speaking to people who feel a little bit lost about what the next steps to, to go and make this a bigger part of their life after getting a PDC or after doing a few designs. Um, maybe you can reiterate some of those concepts and, and some of the inspiration that you transmit through that content of where the, these opportunities are and where they're starting to emerge as things uh, develop, especially yeah. in the post-pandemic world. <laughs> yeah, let's hope it is the post-pandemic world. Right, the long <clears> tail of the post. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, it's really interesting. So I just wanted to tap in on one thing there before we move on to the next subject, but it's... For people that are working on small scale properties that have ambitions to move to large scale properties, everything you learn in the small scale is applicable at the large scale. And, and I, I actually think you become a better designer by starting on the small scale and moving up versus starting at the large scale and moving down because every rural property has a zone one. Um, and if you can't make that efficient, then all of your other zones are going to collapse. So um, don't be disenfranchised if you have ambitions to go bigger and you're on a small property right now. There's lots to learn there. The reality is, is that um, the, the technical stuff is, is tons of fun. There's always learning curves to get on because, because in permaculture, we have we, we touch so many different domains like architecture and biology and physics and thermodynamics and, um, you know, livestock or animal husbandry. I mean, it's just like every, every time you turn your head, there's another learning curve to hop onto. Um, and you can't be an expert at all of it. But the internet and all the books that have been written about all these domains have really done a service to all of us because even if you're on a big learning curve, I mean, you know, YouTube University or whatever video streaming service you want to go to, there's likely going to be some information on that. Some of it's going to be garbage. Um, and so you can kind of figure that out. But the, the piece that Mollison was trying to get across in chapter 14 was, was that, and, and what Dave Jackie and, and um, Tonsmeyer talks about as invisible structures, um, requires all the same design thinking um, but because these components are not tangible, they're harder to think about. And, and so the first, second, third, fourth wave of permaculturists have all had to kind of be entrepreneurs in order to make a livelihood doing this. And I would say that the next wave is going to have to do that as well. Um, we're not quite at the stage where we've got kind of companies that there aren't that many companies that are hiring, hiring permaculturists yet. But I don't think we're far away from that. I think we're actually pretty close to, to kind of reaching that paradigm. Um, and, and so I'm not sure what it is within permaculture that creates the, the strong um, tall poppy syndrome that exists um, in, within our space. Um, but I mean, one business or opportunity that will exist for the end of until the end of time, as far as I can see out into the future is teaching. And it's the, it's the thing that people criticize the most. It's like, oh, the only way to make money in permaculture is to teach. And it's like, so what? Are you giving people value or not? 
Um, and uh, I just read a report from the UK permaculture group, and they said there's about 3 million people on planet Earth practicing permaculture conservatively, which is bigger than I was expecting and quite surprising and awesome. Um, but 3 million relative to 7 billion is we're not even scratching the surface. Um, and so how many universities teach engineering? How many universities teach architects? Um, there's thousands of them. And so um, if you have an aptitude to teach and you can, and, and again, the other thing that happens within the space is you take a PDC and I used to teach the entire course by myself. And somehow I managed to know enough about the domains to be able to teach it all. But um, you don't have to know everything. You just need to know how to find people that know things and, um, and, and collaborate with them and create mutually beneficial relationships. And so um, teaching is a fantastic vocation um, and you can make a living doing it. I've done it for the last 15 years and I encourage all of my students to go into teaching. I support them in their, their aspirations. Um, we promote them. Um, and uh, it's not, I don't think of it, think of it as competition whatsoever. Um, we could have a thousand Jeff Lawtons out there and we still wouldn't be teaching enough. Jeff and I had a conversation not that long ago and he said, Rob, like, I did the math. And he says, if we're going to kind of move the planet to a permaculture paradigm, we have to teach something like 300 million students a day. Um, some, some, I can't remember the number, it was 300,000. I'm probably off by an order of magnitude, but it was an insane number of people He's like, if, if you just did this and then out of those students, like one out of a hundred became teachers, it still would take us 30 years to get there. It was, a, it was an insane number. So education is absolutely a fantastic vocation if you've got it in you to do it. Um, consulting, I cannot keep up with, with the consulting side of my business right now. Um, and it's not just fringe, like kind of early adopters now. Like we have billionaires and millionaires coming to us wanting these things they're putting their money now into these systems they want food forests they want solar arrays they want passive homes um and i'm not an expert in every one of those areas i have a team of people that come in and help with these things um another one that uh urbanites um like uh, you can make money at farming um believe it or not and it's not easy um, but um urbanites are willing to pay a premium like people are waking up to the fact that our food is covered in poison and people are willing to pay more money to know that their food is not covered in poison um and so that opens opportunities up for niche gardeners and um but here's here's the crux the, the ideas are not really the weak link um, the weak link is understanding some, some basic um, entrepreneurial um, principles that can be taught, but they require a lot of deep programming. And so a lot of people go into permaculture who want to start their own business, but they're scared of money. And they're scared of asking people for money for them to do things. And so there's two or three root causes of that. One of them is the lack of self-confidence, which is understanding if it's a new thing. Um, but there's ways around it. So if you're getting into consulting, find somebody like me out there or, or like Oliver, who you can pay money to, to mentor you so that when you're finishing a design, you've got his name on it. You've done all the work. He's just reviewed it and made sure that, that you're not going to create type one errors, go pay people like guys like Oliver and I have spent years, perfect, you know, perfecting our professions. 
Um, it's not something we can afford to give away for free because there's a ton of demand for our time, but we're super happy to exchange value. Um, and so find a mentor, go get a mentor to help you with that. Another thing is like a very basic understanding of, of how value works. Um, and it seems like a silly thing to talk about, but most people don't understand the concept of value. Um, and so that's a whole other conversation um, in that in that piece. And, and so you need to really get clear on, you know, why they charge and, and how to show up professional and how to make sure you have the people and the resources around you so that you can succeed. Um, if you can get all that stuff right, then your idea will likely succeed uh, or it'll have a much better chance of succeeding. But most of the people that fail don't understand these, these basic, basic things because it's never really taught. Um, farms fail because farmers don't understand value. Um, they don't understand marketing. They don't understand how to create connections with people. They don't know how to find hubs. And, and so if, it's hard enough to learn all the different domains in permaculture. And then when you realize there's no jobs out there and you want to make a livelihood, then you've got to hop onto another learning curve, which is like all of the domains that exist within business. And somehow you got to live with those. You got to spend as much time in the permaculture stuff as you can. And then you got to jump over and figure out all the business stuff. And, and so you end up kind of straddling the, the two worlds until you kind of more or less learn both of them. And then you, things get easier, but um yeah, there's there's literally an untapped demand, and and it's I say to my students, we there's a tsunami coming behind us, and you're lucky enough to have had taken a PDC in the last 20 years or beyond, um, and uh, get on your surfboard and start start paddling because you got to paddle before the wave comes here, and and I think that what like permaculturists um, are going to be they're already in huge demand. They're going to be in even huger demand within five to 10 years. When you look at where the world is going geo geopolitically, um, you look at peak oil, peak phosphorus, peak water. Um, we're literally at the end of civilization and the exact people that will help redirect us into the next paradigm are permaculture designers that have an understanding of generalist principles. That's very well said. And uh, that's why I really wanted to get a message like that uh, repeated, even though you do have so many uh, points of context out there and the, the videos and, and other things that you've been saying for a long time, because it needs to be repeated. Uh, I really like what you said as well about the mentorship aspect, because for some reason, there seems to be a disconnect in our culture the way there wasn't perhaps 60 or 70 years ago in the assumption that when you finish your formal training, you go straight into the job market without some kind of guidance to make that transition. And I myself have gotten a huge benefit of mentorship at many points in the past. And that's exactly why I've started to shift my own consultancy into coaching and mentorship because I realized that I can uh, offer a lot of assistance in what people are actually asking me at a lower price point when I kind of group people who are asking the same questions and then yeah. making content out of that so that even more people can can access it for free. And then, you know, if someone wants really dedicated, specific attention on their project, well, then you have an appropriate price point for that as well. And that yeah. way people can enter and access and get the support that they need at whatever resource base that they have access to. And then also using that as an opportunity to create community around it, which the internet yeah. has given us an awesome benefit in being able to crowdsource answers and crowdsource support. Um, so 
within that and then finding that niche. Like you said, permaculture covers essentially everything if you apply the mindset to it, right? Go and figure out what a permaculture ice cream shop would be and find a way to make money at it, right? The concept, the principles can be applied to almost every current uh, vocation and ones that we haven't even thought of or aren't relevant yet until the technology makes it possible, right? Um, and people like you and I who have been generalists for a long time rely heavily on those who specialize in these other things that we can't add that level of specificity and expertise in, but through that collaboration, we can deliver the service and the necessary support to the people who are doing the work. Um, very, very well said. And there's one last question that I would like to explore with you here. And I, I'm starting to ask everybody this now because some of the most interesting things come out of it. And you gave me a little preview before this interview started, but what are you most excited about? What are you working on and really, uh, yeah, motivated to see come to fruition in this upcoming year? So I've often said, um, if I just had the resources of the US military, we could solve all of these ecological problems in a decade. Like it wouldn't, if you had the organizational st structure and the money and the tools and, and machines, it, like there's this cartoon that Bernard Leotard shows in one of his TED talks. He's the architect behind the Euro, which he deeply regrets. Um, and uh, it's this, it's this image of, um, these decrepit looking humans on the side of a street and they're drunk and they're high. Um, they look sickly. Some of them are starving. Um, and, uh, and, and like the air is dirty and the water flowing down a little, like the stream next to it is, is, uh, you know, the fish are dead and the water is polluted and these aliens come down and they go up to one of the humans and they say, um, like, why, why does earth look like this? And do you guys not know how to fix it? And they're like, no, no, we totally know how to fix it. I'm just like, it's easy. We've known it for a long time. We're just waiting for someone to pay us. And um, and so, you know, Mollison in his autobiography, I read this at the end of my PDC every time, says that um, permaculturists now have more people than the UN on the ground doing work around the earth and that the sun never sets on permaculture when you're going to sleep at night somebody else is waking up to like oliver is waking up when i'm going to bed um getting ready to start his day and um and do the work that he does and so the sun never sets on planet earth on permaculture and so that cartoon and and that statement in his autobiography um and and then also thinking about this kind of the resources of the military have been on my mind for a long time and kind of starting to realize that my, like, as I've evolved as a teacher, um, Jeff and Bill both said, Jeff said this to me, like, if nobody else is doing it and you see the opportunity for it to happen, um, then it's obviously got to be you. And, um, and so anyways, I was consulting on a project not that long ago, two years ago, I guess, and um, ended up working for um, some clients in BC who are amazing clients. And we were building a passive greenhouse and completely terraforming this quarter section of land to harvest water. And they were just amazed at what we were doing. <clears throat> 
and I ended up on a call with, with them kind of towards the end of the, the consultancy. And I said, I said this, I said, if, if only I had the resources of the US military, I could do this right across planet Earth in a really short period of time. And they said, okay, write me a pricey on, on that. And so I went away and I wrote a, a four page document on how I would go about regenerating planet Earth by 2047. That was the document's name. And I chose 2047 because I'm going to be really old by then. It better be done by that time. <clears throat> and it seemed like a neat year. Well, these clients were the co-founders of Ethereum. And they said, okay, we're on board. Let's start a company. So we started Fifth World. And so Fifth World's mission, which is what I'm spending all of my time on right now, is to find a way to incentivize Earth's land managers who represent at least a, like a significant portion of the problem that, we, that exists. So phosphorus and nitrogen pollution, most of the GHGs have come as a result. Dr. Ratanlal has said that most of the GHGs on planet Earth are a result of plowing fields, not from fossil fuels. Um, and we know that when we lose soil carbon, that all sorts of other bad things happen as well, which lead to all of the other consequences that we're all aware of right now. And so if, in fact, we know how to do it and we're just waiting for someone to pay us, um, then we better start figuring out how to pay the people that are managing most of Earth's ecosystems and recognize that if we don't get it right, um, even though they own that land, um, they have a direct influence on the quality of our water, the quality of our air, the quality of our food. And it behooves us to not figure out how to change the incentives on planet earth and so we have a very small window of time where we can work with things like cryptocurrencies and smart contracts to influence the incentives on planet earth in a very large scale and kind of feathering or, or um, riding on the, the coattails of the internet as well um, because right now, what we're asking our farmers, we ask them to produce food cheap. That's the first thing we typically ask. And then we ask for it to be nutrient dense. And then we ask for it to not have herbicides and pesticides. And now we want them to also sequester carbon. We want them to, to um, create space for birds. We want them to create space for deer and for insects. And we're asking a heck of a lot of a lot for these people who are all growing and feeding into a commodity system that really is only designed to incentivize price and volume. And so if we don't figure this out, because the population, I, I do believe the population is on the verge of a collapse, just a demographic collapse in the next 20 or 30 years, uh, but that's still a lot of people to feed, regardless of that demographic collapse. If we don't find a way of working together and um, paying or at least contributing to the benefits that we all want, the well-being, which we'll finish with that. Um, and, and our well-being is directly linked to the well-being of the people that are managing all the land on earth. Then we'll end up with a tragedy of the commons. And that means the end of humanity. Um, earth will reboot. It's already done it six times. It'll do it again. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to be part of that community of life. And if we do, um, we have 
incredibly well-developed prefrontal cortexes. We have to, to come back to what you were saying earlier and to kind of put a capstone on it. We, you don't do permaculture, but you use it within what you do. So what would a financial system look like that actually was able to understand these negative externalities and turn them into positive externalities? What would that look like? And how would we build that? And how many people will be required for that? Um, and so that's what Fifth World's gonna do. And we're gonna figure out how to objectively measure the proxies that we can from in, in a remote way and incentivize land managers for doing the right thing. But if we get that right, things will change very quickly. Now, I know it's still a little bit early to get into the details on this, but what can you tell me about how this company works and how it's going to move finance into that sector to incentivize these people who have power over land management? So all the money is sitting in the economy right now. And we've seen how much money can flow into Bitcoin, which is a decentralized protocol that allows people to own their value. So Bitcoin works by, it's literally just a virus. Um, so some guy came up, we don't know who, came up with a protocol that says whoever solves problems, solves, uh, figures out what the, where the next prime number is, gets a Bitcoin. Um, and the person that does it fastest is the one that gets the most Bitcoin. So he created a problem and a whole bunch of people created a decentralized network to create a solution. And then in order to operate the transactions on that Bitcoin network, you need a bunch of people that are ho holding the ledger. A ledger is just like a paper ledger, except it's a digital ledger. And so um, Bitcoin allows any person that can get access to a computer and has access to the internet to own their value. Most of the time, um, we, we are price takers. So if you're an electrician or you're a carpenter or you're an engineer, you have to go out into the general um, market and you, 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 there is some ability to market yourself and to, to choose different options. Um, but generally we're, we're, we're price takers and most of the money, almost all of the money that we get access to has been minted as a result of a debt-based system. And so money comes into existence by central banks through the creation of debt. Debt is created when somebody promises to, to buy a mortgage or buy a car. And so if you project that system out far enough, if, if the big banks are only generating the principal and they're not creating the interest, then there's really only one way for that system to exist, which is that you have to have perpetual growth. Um, you have to have, I mean, this is a very long conversation about how money creation works. Um, the, the end game is that the people that create the money are able to make all the rules because they create all the money. And, and we know that the Bank of Canada, for example, is not a, a, a sovereign bank. It's, and we know that the Federal Reserve is not a sovereign bank. These are, there's a banking cartel in this world. It's not a conspiracy theory. You can do lots of research on this. And so if they're the ones that we've entrusted with the keys of, of money creation, then our world will go in the direction that they deem to be the right direction. What Bitcoin does is it says, well, everybody can create money. Anybody that can solve a computer program has the ability to generate money in the form of Bitcoins. And every different cryptocurrency on planet Earth um, has a different way of mining. So mining is the act of, of generating value. Um, and, and so for Bitcoin, it's, it's generating or solving prime numbers. Um, there's a, a, um, 
There's a cryptocurrency called SiaCoin, and SiaCoin's a competitor to Amazon Web Services. And the way it works is that instead of having all your files stored in a centralized Amazon data center, now every computer on planet Earth um, can participate in a decentralized file storage mechanism, and whoever hosts those files get paid in SiaCoin. And SiaCoin is traded on exchanges, and you can exchange SiaCoins for US dollars or for Bitcoins or for um, uh, Ethereum tokens. Um, and so now all of a sudden, we don't have to operate only in the fiat, which is basically money by money is given value by decree. It's not backed by silver or gold. Um, and so we have the ability to generate our own value using our own infrastructure. And it's, it's, it's not contingent upon what these central banks um, say is the only legal tender within the country. And this is why the finance system right now is in, is in its Kodak moment. We are actually witnessing a war right now between the centralized finance mechanism on earth and the decentralized finance mechanism on earth. And um, there's, that's, that's a whole other podcast right there. And so our token is going to, instead of um, giving people the opportunity to mine Bitcoins by solving prime numbers, we are going to solve complex ecosystem service problems. Um, and the people that solve those problems are going to be our miners. They're going to be farmers. They're going to be land managers. And if they solve a really hard problem or they improve a system in a specific way, they're going to be remunerated for that. <clears throat> and we're going to do it in an objective way that's based in science and, and, as I said, objective so that we can measure it and say that it's real. And that will likely attract um, companies that have um, ESG requirements, so environmental stewardship and governance. Um, so when a company like Shell or, um, you know, uh, Barrick Gold or whatever goes out and does their thing, they promise their shareholders that, yes, we make some messes when we're out in the world, but we're going to set aside a certain amount of money to make things right. Those are called ESGs. And so their shareholders might come and say, well, we want to um, ensure that you're not just putting lip service to these ESGs, that they actually mean something. And so every token created will have an objective measure of what it actually did for an ecosystem. So now that there is a trustworthy, verifiable uh, benefit as a result of something happening on planet Earth. And there's a lot of greenwashing going on right now with GHG credits. There's a lot of greenwashing going on with um, um, all sorts of um, different you know, verification programs. And so we need to raise the level because like, yes, I could just build something that makes me a whole pile of money and greenwashes, which is what a lot of people are doing. But I have, um, um, I'm self-interested as, as, as an individual, but I'm also self-interested um, in with regards to, this comes back to the end of our conversation with regards to how, what kind of a planet I'm leaving for my kin and my neighbors and their kin. Um, because I better be thinking about my neighbors as well because my neighbors have to live with my kids. And so it's in my best interest to make sure that they're taken care of at the same time. And so um, we're going to use our token to help incentivize that regeneration.
Amazing, man. This is really exciting stuff. And like you said, this can be easily in its own podcast in itself. So when you are ready to unveil this whole thing and start to put it out there and start some calls to action, I trust you'll get in touch with me and we'll do a follow up. But until then, how can people reach out to you, learn more about the resources that you have out there and get in touch? So Fifth World doesn't actually have a, a website right now. I'm building it as we speak. Um, right now, Verge Permaculture is being run by Michelle, my wife. And, um, and so that's the best way to, to stay in touch. Um, yeah, I mean, for people that want to, to get on this, this tidal wave that we're hoping to create, uh, get your PDC. There's lots of people out there that are teaching them um, and start getting educated in what it actually means to be doing permaculture. Um, and you probably want to take a couple of them because every teacher teaches it a slightly different way and they have different biases and different ways of explaining things um and go out there and, and start getting educated and start doing stuff even if it's a small garden in your backyard a solar around your house insulating your building like learn what it means to take control of your supply chains and if you don't want to get involved in fifth world that's that's fine um do it for yourself um, we are literally witnessing the disintegration so not like we have an integrated civilization right now. It's somewhat integrated. It's disintegrating right now um, for lots of reasons. And so if you like to eat and stay warm, I have a, a great a client right now that I'm working for. <clears throat> and she, um, <clears throat> she said, you know, I love all the concepts of permaculture. It's fantastic. You know, we're trying to get to her values and visions. She said, you know, I want to do what's right for the planet, but still have hot showers. And that, that's what permaculture lets us to do. It's, it's, it takes away the guilt. It allows you to have the skills to be able to understand how you fit within planet Earth. You are not a virus or um, intrinsically destructive. You just need to get the design right. And so there's so many reasons to go out and take a PDC. Get started today. Um, and, um, and yeah, we'll have a fifth world website up within the not too distant future. And I'm sure um, Oliver and I will be having another conversation as well when that happens. Absolutely. And yeah, I really like on that closing note that you said that this really opens up the possibility for taking the guilt out of the things that you enjoy. Uh, I really like when doing good by the planet is not framed as some sort of austerity but rather this mm. is the abundance that we can be living in because we are dependent on the systems that support us. Uh, this is a great place to put a little bookmark in it and we'll continue on the next session. Rob, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, bud. Well, I look forward to the next one. Thanks again to Rob Avis. I'll be posting all the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com, where you can also find all of the episodes of the previous five seasons for free. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these podcasts are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Now, though I'm publishing some pictures and videos of my own design and implementation process of moving to my property on social media, there's a lot more personal content now that I'm only posting on the Discord. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators by signing up through the link on the homepage or on our Instagram link tree. In the upcoming weeks, I'll continue this deep dive into the design process at different scales, so be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you stream your podcast from, and I'll catch you on the next episode. 
So that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.